Section 11 of The Idea of Progress by J.B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7. New Conceptions of History. Montesquieu, Voltaire, Turgot. The theory of human progress could not be durably established by abstract arguments, or on the slender foundations laid by the Abbe de Saint-Pierre. It must ultimately be judged by the evidence afforded by history, and it is not accidental that, contemporaneously with the advent of this idea, the study of history underwent a revolution. If progress was to be more than the sanguine dream of an optimist, it must be shown that man's career on earth had not been a chapter of accidents which might lead anywhere or nowhere, but is subject to discoverable laws which have determined its general route and will secure his arrival at the desirable place. Hitherto a certain order and unity had been found in history by the Christian theory of providential design and final causes. New principles of order and unity were needed to replace the principles which rationalism had discredited. Just as the advance of science depended on the postulate that physical phenomena are subject to invariable laws, so if any conclusions were to be drawn from history, some similar postulate as to social phenomena was required. It was thus in harmony with the general movement of thought that about the middle of the 18th century new lines of investigation were opened, leading to sociology, the history of civilization, and the philosophy of history. Montesquieu's De l'Esprit des Lois, which may claim to be the parent work of modern social science, Voltaire's Essai sur les Murs, and Turgot's plan of a Histoire Universelle, began a new era in man's vision of the past. 1. Montesquieu was not among the apostles of the idea of progress. It never secured any hold upon his mind. But he had grown up in the same intellectual climate in which that idea was produced. He had been nurtured both on the dissolving dialectic of Bale and on the Cartesian enunciation of natural law. And his work contributed to the service not of the doctrine of the past, but of the doctrine of the future. For he attempted to extend the Cartesian theory to social facts. He laid down that political, like physical, phenomena are subject to general laws. He had already conceived this, his most striking and important idea, when he wrote the Considerations on the Greatness and Decadence of the Romans, 1734, in which he attempted to apply it. Quote, it is not fortune who governs the world, as we see from the history of the Romans. There are general causes, moral or physical, which operate in every monarchy, raise it, maintain it, or overthrow it. All that occurs is subject to these causes, and if a particular cause like the accidental result of a battle, has ruined a state, there was a general cause which made the downfall of this state ensue from a single battle. In a word, the principal movement, l'allure principale, draws with it all the particular occurrences. But if this excludes fortune, it also dispenses with providence, design, and final causes. And one of the effects of the considerations, which Montesquieu cannot have overlooked, was to discredit Bossuet's treatment of history. The Esprit des Lois appeared fourteen years later. Among books which have exercised a considerable influence on thought, few are more disappointing to a modern reader. The author had not the gift of what might be called logical architecture, and his work produces the effect of a collection of ideas which he was unable to coordinate in the clarity of a system. A new principle, the operation of general causes, is enthroned. But beyond the obvious distinction of physical and moral, they are not classified. We have no guarantee that the moral causes are fully enumerated, and those which are original are not distinguished from those which are derived. 
the general cause which Montesquieu impresses most clearly on the reader's mind is that of physical environment, geography and climate. The influence of climate on civilization was not a new idea. In modern times, as we have seen, it was noticed by Baudin and recognized by Fontenelle. The Abbé de Saint-Pierre applied it to explain the origin of the Mohammedan religion, and the Abbé Dubot, in his Reflections on Poetry and Painting, maintained that climate helps to determine the epochs of art and science. Chardin, in his Travels, a book which Montesquieu studied, had also appreciated its importance. But Montesquieu drew general attention to it, and, since he wrote, geographical conditions have been recognized by all inquirers as an influential factor in the development of human societies. His own discussion of the question did not result in any useful conclusions. He did not determine the limits of the action of physical conditions, and a reader hardly knows whether to regard them as fundamental or accessory, as determining the course of civilization or only perturbing it. Several things govern men, he says, quote, climate, religion, laws, precepts of government, historical examples, morals, and manners, whence is formed as their result a general mind, esprit général. This coordination of climate with products of social life is characteristic of his unsystematic thought. But the remark which the author went on to make, that there is always a correlation between the laws of a people and its esprit général, was important. It pointed to the theory that all the products of social life are closely interrelated. In Montesquieu's time, people were under the illusion that legislation has an almost unlimited power to modify social conditions. We have seen this in the case of Saint-Pierre. Montesquieu's conception of general laws should have been an antidote to this belief. It had, however, less effect on his contemporaries than we might have expected, and they found more to their purpose in what he said of the influence of laws on manners. There may be something in Comte's suggestion that he could not give his conception any real consistency or vigor just because he was himself unconsciously under the influence of excessive faith in the effects of legislative action. A fundamental defect in Montesquieu's treatment of social phenomena is that he abstracted them from their relations in time. It was his merit to attempt to explain the correlation of laws and institutions with historical circumstances, but he did not distinguish or connect stages of civilization. He was inclined to confound, as Sorel has observed, all periods and constitutions. Whatever be the value of the idea of progress, we may agree with Comte that, if Montesquieu had grasped it, he would have produced a more striking work. His book announces a revolution in the study of political science, but in many ways belongs itself to the pre-Montesquieu era. 2. In the same years in which Montesquieu was busy on the composition of the Esprit des Lois, Voltaire was writing his Age of Louis XIV and his Essay on the Manners and Mind of Nations and on the Principal Facts of History from Charlemagne to the Death of Louis XIII. The former work, which everybody reads still, appeared in 1751. Parts of the essay, which has long since fallen into neglect, were published in the Mercure de France between 1745 and 1751. It was issued complete in 1756, along with the Age of Louis XIV, which was its continuation. If we add the Précis of the Reign of Louis Cannes, 1769, and observe that the introduction and first fourteen chapters of the essay sketch the history of the world before Charlemagne, and that China, India, and America are included in the survey, Voltaire's work amounts to a complete survey of the civilization of the world from the earliest times to his own. If Montesquieu founded social science, Voltaire created the history of civilization, and the essay, for all its limitations, 
stands out as one of the considerable books of the century. In his Age of Louis XIV, he announced that his object was, quote, to paint not the actions of a single man, but the mind of men, l'esprit des hommes, in the most enlightened age that had ever been, close quote, and that the progress of the arts and sciences was an essential part of his subject. In the same way, he proposed in the essay to trace l'histoire de l'esprit humain, not the details of facts, and to show by what steps man advanced from the barbarous rusticity of the times of Charlemagne and his successors to the politeness of our own. To do this, he said, was really to write the history of opinion, for all the great successive social and political changes which have transformed the world were due to changes of opinion. Prejudice succeeded prejudice, error followed error. At last, with time, men came to correct their ideas and learn to think. The motif of the book is, briefly, that wars and religions have been the great obstacles to the progress of humanity, and that if they were abolished, with the prejudices which engender them, the world would rapidly improve. We may believe, he says, quote, that reason and industry will always progress more and more, that the useful arts will be improved, that of the evils which have afflicted men, prejudices, which are not their least scourge, will gradually disappear among all those who govern nations, and that philosophy, universally diffused, will give some consolation to human nature for the calamities which it will experience in all ages. Close quote. This indeed is not the tone of the Abbe de Saint-Pierre, Voltaire's optimism was always tempered with cynicism, but the idea of progress is there, though moderately conceived, and it is based on the same principle, universal reason implanted in man, which, quote, subsists in spite of all the passions which make war on it, in spite of all the tyrants who would drown it in blood, in spite of the impostors who would annihilate it by superstition, close quote. And this was certainly his considered view. His common sense prevented him from indulging in utopian speculations about the future, and his cynicism constantly led him to use the language of a pessimist. But at an early stage of his career, he had taken up arms for human nature against that sublime misanthrope Pascal, who writes against human nature almost as he wrote against the Jesuits. And he returned to the attack at the end of his life. Now Pascal's pensées enshrined a theory of life, the doctrine of original sin, the idea that the object of life is to prepare for death, which was sternly opposed to the spirit of progress. Voltaire instinctively felt that this was an enemy that had to be dealt with. In a lighter vein, he had maintained in a well-known poem, Le Mondain, 1756, the value of civilization and all its effects, including luxury, against those who regretted the simplicity of ancient times, the golden age of Saturn. Oh, le bon temps que ce siècle de fer! Life in Paris, London, or Rome today is infinitely preferable to life in the Garden of Eden. D'un bon vin frais où la mousse ou la sève ne gratta point le triste gosier d'oeuvre. La soie et l'or ne brillaient point chez eux. Admirez-vous pour cela nos ailleurs? Il leur manquait l'industrie et l'essence. Est-ce vertu? C'était pure ignorance. To return to the essay, it flung down the gauge of battle to that conception of the history of the world which had been brilliantly represented by Bossuet's Discours sur l'histoire universelle. This work was constantly in Voltaire's mind. He pointed out that it had no claim to be universal. It related only to four or five peoples, and especially the little Jewish nation which was unknown to the rest of the world or justly despised, but which Bossuet made the center of interest, as if the final cause of all the great empires of antiquity lay in their relations to the Jews. He had Bossuet in mind when he said, quote, 
we will speak of the Jews as we would speak of Scythians or Greeks, weighing probabilities and discussing facts. In his new perspective, the significance of Hebrew history is for the first time reduced to moderate limits. But it was not only in this particular, though central, point that Voltaire challenged Bossuet's view. He eliminated final causes altogether, and providence plays no part on his historical stage. Here his work reinforced the teaching of Montesquieu. Otherwise Montesquieu and Voltaire entirely differed in their methods. Voltaire concerned himself only with the causal enchainment of events and the immediate motives of men. His interpretation of history was confined to the discovery of particular causes. He did not consider the operation of those larger general causes which Montesquieu investigated. Montesquieu sought to show that the vicissitudes of societies were subject to law. Voltaire believed that events were determined by chance where they were not consciously guided by human reason. The element of chance is conspicuous even in legislation. Quote, Almost all laws have been instituted to meet passing needs, like remedies applied fortuitously, which have cured one patient and kill others. Close quote. On Voltaire's theory, the development of humanity might at any moment have been diverted into a different course. But whatever course it took, the nature of human reason would have ensured a progress in civilization. Yet the reader of the essay and Louis XIV might well have come away with a feeling that the security of progress is frail and precarious. If fortune has governed events, if the rise and fall of empires, the succession of religions, the revolutions of states, and most of the great crises of history were decided by accidents, is there any cogent ground for believing that human reason, the principle to which Voltaire attributes the advance of civilization, will prevail in the long run? Civilization has been organized here and there, now and then, up to a certain point. There have been eras of rapid progress, but how can we be sure that these are not episodes, themselves also fortuitous? For growth has been followed by decay, progress by regress. Can it be said that history authorizes the conclusion that reason will ever gain such an ascendancy that the play of chance will no longer be able to thwart her will? Is such a conclusion more than a hope, unsanctioned by the data of past experience, merely one of the characteristics of the age of illumination? Voltaire and Montesquieu thus raised fundamental questions of great moment for the doctrine of progress, questions which belong to what was soon to be known as the philosophy of history, a name invented by Voltaire, though hardly meant by him in the sense which it afterwards assumed. 3. Six years before Voltaire's essay was published in its complete form, a young man was planning a work on the same subject. Turgot is honorably remembered as an economist and administrator, but if he had ever written the Discourses on Universal History, which he designed at the age of 23, his position in historical literature might have overshadowed his other claims to be remembered. We possess a partial sketch of its plan, which is supplemented by two lectures he delivered at the Sorbonne in 1750, so that we know his general conceptions. He had assimilated the ideas of the Esprit des Lois, and it is probable that he had read the parts of Voltaire's work which had appeared in a periodical. His work, like Voltaire's, was to be a challenge to Bossuet's view of history. His purpose was to trace the fortunes of the race in the light of the idea of progress. He occasionally refers to providence, but this is no more than a prudent lip service. Providence has no functions in his scheme. The part which it played in Bossuet is usurped by those general causes which he had learned from Montesquieu. But his systematic mind would have organized and classified the ideas which Montesquieu left somewhat confused. He criticized the inductions drawn in the Esprit des Lois concerning the influence of climate as hasty and exaggerated, 
and he pointed out that the physical causes can only produce their effects by acting on the hidden principles which contribute to form our mind and character. It follows that the psychical or moral causes are the first element to consider, and it is a fault of method to try to evaluate physical causes till we have exhausted the moral, and are certain that the phenomena cannot be explained by these alone. In other words, the study of the development of societies must be based on psychology, and for Turgot, as for all his progressive contemporaries, psychology meant the philosophy of Locke. General necessary causes, therefore, which we should rather call conditions, have determined the course of history, the nature of man, his passions and his reason in the first place, and in the second his environment, geography and climate. But its course is a strict sequence of particular causes and effects, which bind the state of the world at a given moment to all those which have preceded it. Turgot does not discuss the question of free will, but his causal continuity does not exclude the free action of great men. He conceives universal history as the progress of the human race advancing as an immense whole steadily, though slowly, through alternating periods of calm and disturbance towards greater perfection. The various units of the entire mass do not move with equal steps, because nature is not impartial with her gifts. Some men have talents denied to others, and the gifts of nature are sometimes developed by circumstances, sometimes left buried in obscurity. The inequalities in the march of nations are due to the infinite variety of circumstances, and these inequalities may be taken to prove that the world had a beginning, for in an eternal duration they would have disappeared. But the development of human societies has not been guided by human reason. Men have not consciously made general happiness the end of their actions. They have been conducted by passion and ambition, and have never known to what goal they were moving. For if reason had presided, progress would soon have been arrested. To avoid war, peoples would have remained in isolation, and the race would have lived divided forever into a multitude of isolated groups, speaking different tongues. All these groups would have been limited in the range of their ideas, stationary in science, art, and government, and would never have risen above mediocrity. The history of China is an example of the results of restricted intercourse among peoples. Thus the unexpected conclusion emerges that without unreason and injustice there would have been no progress. It is hardly necessary to observe that this argument is untenable. The hypothesis assumes that reason is in control among the primitive peoples, and at the same time supposes that its power would completely disappear if they attempted to engage in peaceful intercourse. But though Turgot has put his point in an unconvincing form, his purpose was to show that, as a matter of fact, the tumultuous and dangerous passions have been driving forces which have moved the world in a desirable direction till the time should come for reason to take the helm. Thus, while Turgot might have subscribed to Voltaire's assertion that history is largely un remas de crime, de folie et de malheur, his view of the significance of man's sufferings is different and almost approaches the facile optimism of Pope. Whatever is, is right. He regards all the race's actual experiences as the indispensable mechanism of progress, and does not regret its mistakes and calamities. Many changes and revolutions, he observes, may seem to have had most mischievous effects, Yet every change has brought some advantage, for it has been a new experience and therefore has been instructive. Man advances by committing errors. The history of science shows, as Fontenelle had pointed out, that truth is reached over the ruins of false hypotheses. The difficulty presented by periods of decadence and barbarism succeeding epochs of enlightenment is met by the assertion that in such dark times the world has not stood still, 
there has really been a progression which, though relatively inconspicuous, is not unimportant. In the Middle Ages, which are the prominent case, there were improvements in mechanical arts, in commerce, in some of the habits of civil life, all of which helped to prepare the way for happier times. Here, Turgot's view of history is sharply opposed to Voltaire's. He considers Christianity to have been a powerful agent of civilization, not a hinderer or an enemy. Had he executed his design, his work might well have furnished a notable make-weight to the view held by Voltaire, and afterwards more judicially developed by Gibbon, that the triumph of barbarism and religion was a calamity for the world. Turgot also propounded two laws of development. He observed that when a people is progressing, every step it takes causes an acceleration in the rate of progress, and he anticipated Comte's famous law of the three stages of intellectual evolution, though without giving it the extensive and fundamental significance which Comte claimed for it. Quote, Before man understood the causal connection of physical phenomena, nothing was so natural as to suppose they were produced by intelligent beings, invisible and resembling ourselves, for what else would they have resembled? Close quote. That is Comte's theological stage. Quote, when philosophers recognized the absurdity of the fables about the gods, but had not yet gained an insight into natural history, they thought to explain the causes of phenomena by abstract expressions, such as essences and faculties, close quote. That is the metaphysical stage. Quote, it was only at a later period that by observing the reciprocal mechanical action of bodies, hypotheses were formed which could be developed by mathematics and verified by experience, close quote. There is the positive stage. The observation assuredly does not possess the far-reaching importance which Comte attached to it, but whatever value it has, Turgot deserves the credit of having been the first to state it. The notes which Turgot made for his plan permit us to conjecture that his universal history would have been a greater and more profound work than the essay of Voltaire. It would have embodied in a digested form the ideas of Montesquieu, to which Voltaire paid little attention, and the author would have elaborated the intimate connection and mutual interaction among all social phenomena, government and morals, religion, science, and arts. While his general thesis coincided with that of Voltaire, the gradual advance of humanity towards a state of enlightenment and reasonableness, he made the idea of progress more vital. For him it was an organizing conception, just as the idea of providence was for St. Augustine and Bossuet an organizing conception, which gave history its unity and meaning. The view that man has throughout been blindly moving in the right direction is the counterpart of what Bossuet represented as a divine plan wrought out by the actions of men who are ignorant of it, and is sharply opposed to the views of Voltaire and the other philosophers of the day who ascribed progress exclusively to human reason consciously striving against ignorance and passion. End of section 11